Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset Team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And you can think of me as the Paulie Walnuts to Sarah's Tony Soprano. Oh, let's keep it going, Mike. Keep it going. You like you like that one? That makes you the Tony boss. Soprano, that's, I, that's, you know, I am the boss here. You know that. That's a big compliment in, in Jersey here. So I, I hope you like that one. Uh, down in North Carolina, I don't know if they take Tony Soprano as, as, as big as a compliment as uh, with you in Jersey. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to take it and run with it. All right, good. A big week on the show. So the breakneck rally in the stock market, even amid the economic uncertainty surrounding the coronavirus, has many market observers wondering if a bubble is forming. Our guest is the absolute perfect person to discuss this and for years has analyzed the nature of bubbles across financial markets. And as always, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And remember, if you saw anything crazy, give us a call on the Bloomberg podcast hotline at 646-324-3490 or tweet to us at podcasts and maybe we'll read your tweet or play your voicemail on the show. And Sarah, as you said, very, very excited to welcome back this week's guest. But before I introduce him, I do want to point out one thing to listeners. You know how the big uh, thing on Wall Street now, the big trend is to look at all the alternative data, the Apple Maps, mobility data, open table, that sort of thing. I want to warn people, I think there's a problem with the Apple mobility data. And, and Sarah, you know what that is? I'm waiting for this explanation. Let's hear it. The uptick in that data is all because of Sarah. I think truly I did. I did use Apple Maps a very fair amount <laughs> over the past week or so planning out uh, how I was going to get up here. Um, I will say, though, service is very rocky. So the Apple mobility data probably hasn't been able to send through at decent amounts of time. I'm hiding out. It's pretty cool. Hiding out. It Escaped is. Florida. You- now I'm hiding out uh, in the woods. <laughs> You, you look like you're in a giant sauna right now. We're, we're, uh, you can't see this at home, but we're all, all on a Zoom call. how we do uh, our podcasts in, in the age of COVID. And, and Sarah, ha- Sarah fled New York because the virus got really bad to her family home in Florida. It got bad in Florida. Now she's fled to North Carolina. So if you're listening from North Carolina, I mean, I'm no doctor, but I'm going to say maybe shelter in place because this virus is following Sarah. Yeah, I've, I've really goes. timed COVID-19 very well with my travels across the country. And <laughs> I have been driving everywhere too and keeping to myself. Um, but yes, fingers crossed that doesn't happen. Obviously uh, would hate for that to happen in North Carolina. There's an alternative explanation. Maybe she's bringing it wherever she goes. I've never had it. I promise. I've been tested. N- nothing. <laughs> This, this is one more reason why I'm glad we're doing this uh, these podcasts remotely these days. But uh, that other voice you hear, that's our guest this week. Very, very excited to have him back on the show. His name is Rob Arnott. He's the co-founder of Research Affiliates. Rob, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. 
And Rob, where are you? You're in California, I presume, right? I live mostly in Miami Beach, but I flee Miami Beach during the summer months and uh, return to Newport Beach, where I used to live. So I'm I'm uh, hunkered down here at home uh, until end of September, roughly. Florida to California. Rob can't escape it either. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Rob, as Sarah pointed out in the in the introduction, you've done a lot of really fascinating research over the years on bubbles. And boy, I I think that one of the craziest things I've seen this year is this notion of the the valuation expansion that we've seen in a market that already seemed very frothy before the recession hit. You know, of course, we had the the big correction, the, the bear market that was very quickly, almost completely reversed. How shocking is it to you to see this valuation expansion we're seeing right now? And, you know, based on on your studies of past bubbles, is there any way to sort of expect how far it goes or or when the, the sort of the music stops playing and, and we all have to come back to earth, sort of mean revert in valuations, if ever? Uh, I'll take the last part of your question first. Short answer is no. There's no way of knowing when it's when the bubble's going to peter out. We just know that it will. Um, we also know that people buying bubble assets uh, will make money until they don't. And if they're buying on the presumption that, hey, it's soaring, uh, I want to get on this and uh, ride it the next leg up. Um, if they don't have a sell discipline, if they don't have a view of what will it take for me to say, OK, enough already, I'm going to get out. Um, then they are doomed to ride the roller coaster over the top and down. And uh, so without a sell discipline, buying bubble assets uh, is insanely stupid. Bubbles, uh, Jeremy Grantham went on record saying this is the third bubble of his lifetime. I view bubbles on, on a more uh, scaled uh approach. There's always bubbles. There's little micro bubbles at work in the market all the time. Bits of irrationality all the time. What we think of as a bubble is really when a market as a whole goes to irrational levels or when a segment of the market as a whole goes to irrational levels. Uh, one of the things that I've done that I think is relatively important is to come up with a workable definition of the term bubble. People bandy around the term and all it means is, well, it's frothy. Uh, okay, froth is a characteristic of bubbles and vice versa, but that doesn't define it in a way you can use it in real time. Uh, my definition that you can use in real time is if you wanted to value an asset using discounted cash flow or some other accepted valuation method, you would have to use implausible assumptions to justify the current multiple. Second part of the definition, and no less important, the marginal buyer, the person who's buying at today's prices, doesn't care about valuation models at all. If those two definitions are in place, you've got a bubble and you can identify it when it's happening. Now, the right answer is not to short, short all of the bubble assets because bubbles can continue farther than you can imagine. The, the old adage, the market can be irrational longer than you can remain solvent, uh, is absolutely true. And there's, there's myriad examples of that.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I love the title of one of the papers that research affiliates put out back in April of 2018. And it's, yes, it's a bubble. So what? And you mentioned micro bubbles. And at the time, one of those micro bubbles that you mentioned was Tesla. And of course, look at where we are now with Tesla. But we hear the word bubble being thrown out almost constantly these days, whether or not it relates to tech or the fang names or Tesla, for example. We had a recent guest on the podcast who talked about the concept of a melt-up and said that, hold on a second, sure, it's scary because eventually we'll end and roll over, but you can enjoy it while it's happening. Well, from your perspective, because it's so difficult to time these things, what advice can you give on how to possibly approach what may be a bubble? Well, you can enjoy it as long as it, as it keeps going, for sure. The question is, do you have a cell discipline? So whoever said, enjoy it while it's running, the question to them would be a very simple one. Okay, so what will it take for you to sell? Tesla is currently valued larger than the entire U.S. auto industry ex-Tesla. It's valued at more than twice the value of Toyota, which has remained profitable through the COVID crisis, remained profitable through the global financial crisis, and produces 30 times as many cars as Tesla. Now, Tesla is not just an auto company. It's also a technology company and a patents company and an energy company and so forth. But what they purport to make money on at the moment is cars. And what they hope aspirationally to make money on uh, is some of these other things too. The bottom line is to justify a valuation larger than, test, than Toyota plus the entire U.S. auto industry. The combination of all of that, you'd have to paint a scenario in which uh, Tesla's revenues are comparable to all of those companies combined in, let's say, 10 years. Is that possible? Yes. That's why I use the word plausible. Is it plausible? No. It would have to see 30 or 40% growth per annum for the next 10 years in order to have that uh, 30-fold, 40-fold, 50-fold growth in business in just 10 years. In fact, in its last 10 years, it hasn't grown 50-fold. Sir, I think Elon needs to restock those short shorts he was selling to justify this valuation. That's the key to it. Summer's not going to last forever. They sold out of those short shorts too quickly. I would note that I have never shorted Tesla. I've thought it was overpriced since it was a lot cheaper than than current levels. At 300 level, I was thinking it's a short. But I've never shorted it for the very simple reason that bubbles can continue longer than you can possibly imagine and can go further than you can possibly imagine. They don't last forever. When I use the word plausible, it's important because Uh, you do have bubble stocks that that simple definition would identify as a bubble and correctly identify as a bubble that subsequently prove to have uh, results that 
that exceed plausible and that actually justify those prices. The vivid example that comes to mind from the earlier tech bubble of 2000 is Amazon. Amazon in 99 was priced at levels that it would have had to achieve implausible growth to justify the prices at that time. Well, over the next 10 years, it underperformed the market in a big way. Over the next 10 years, it's in that second decade that they finally hit their stride and achieved the kind of growth that would have justified the 1999 price. That's a long time to wait. So bubbles usually burst. There's just enough exceptions to the rule that do achieve implausible growth and then some that it draws suckers in to say, okay, this time is different. I wonder if there is uh, an element of people trying to put a book value on on Elon Musk's brain, you know, and and looking, looking, and it's a, the Amazon example is a great example, you know, that valuation for an online bookseller was one thing, but of course we saw, you know, Amazon turn into something much more than that. And I wonder if people are thinking Elon will will turn this into something bigger than just a car company, you know, a, a battery company that, you know, wh- whatever. I, I don't know. But it's hard to get into the brains of people that are buying uh, Tesla at 10,000 times trailing earnings. So I'll, uh, I'll, uh, <laughs> or, or 12 times annual run rate revenues. To make money at, at 10 times revenues, if you assume maybe the company will have a 20 or 30% profit margin down the road, how how big would those revenues have to grow to justify 10 times revenues? Well, you'd have to have the revenues grow to 30 to 50 times current levels to justify 10 times revenues today. And 30 to 50 times growth, my goodness, that is an extravagant expectation. Uh, I would also say that Amazon has entered what I would call bubble territory. when it announced its first quarter earnings uh, at the end of April, it was priced at the end of that day at 111 times trailing one-year earnings. Now, I use trailing earnings, not expected earnings, because expected earnings haven't happened yet, and they often don't. But in any event, they were selling at 111 times the trailing earnings. My chief investment officer, Chris Brightman, did a very simple analysis. He said, what if Amazon grows tenfold in the next 10 years? grows tenfold and at that stage is bigger than the entire U.S. retailing community in terms of its sales, bigger than all of U.S. retailing in the space of 10 years. What would it be worth? And he came up with an answer of 70 times earnings. It would be worth a massive premium to the market. 70 times earnings is a big premium. It's not 111 times and it's not today's 160 times. Right. Right. It's a good point about trailing earnings, especially in this environment when, boy, who's even given a forecast anymore? It's it's almost impossible to know. But, uh, Rob, I think what a lot of from the ma- from sort of the macro angle, um, I think what a lot of people are struggling with when they try to d- do valuation models is the notion that real yields are negative right now. In other words, you know, Treasury yields, the safest assets are paying a yield uh, that's less than the inflation rate, even out, I think, all the way to 30 years. I'd have to double check that. But the, the whole curve pretty much is is negative uh, on a real basis. How much does that gum up your attempt to to find a fair valuation? You know, our uh, colleague of mine who writes a column at Bloomberg, Cameron Christ, 
keeps joking that, you know, people think this justifies sort of an, an infinity valuation on tech stocks. But there is some truth to the fact that when the, you know, when the discount rate is so low, when real yields are negative, we should be able to ex- sort of expect some valuation expansion. But you know, how do you wrap your head around an equity valuation from a macro level when, when real yields are negative? Well, firstly, re- low real yields do uh, justify higher valuations. So let's stipulate that and move that out of the way. The question is how much higher? Now, one of the nuances is the Gordon equation, which is um, dividends over a discount rate being a valuation metric for companies, which means that if the, if the discount rate is zero, that the valuation is infinity. Okay, well, that is tacitly the argument that negative rates justify any valuation you choose. My pushback on that is we had uh, negligible real rates in the mid-50s, and stocks were trading at 10, 12 times earnings. So it didn't work then. We have negative real rates in Japan and Europe. They're trading at half to two-thirds our multiples, so it's not working there. So if it doesn't work in other locations or at other times, then why not? And I think the reason is very, very simple. Your, your growth rate is also linked to real interest rates. Real interest rates being low can mean money is cheap and the discount rate is way down. Uh, and it can mean that growth expectations are anemic. And you have to take that into account. If growth expectations drop just as much as the interest rates, they cancel and the low rates don't help your valuations at all. So what does research affiliates do in that environment? I spoke with Chris Brightman back in April, so just a couple months ago, early on in the month, and he explained to me how you were moving from a more defensive posture to more so risk on, moving into small cap U.S. stocks, moving further more so into value. Obviously, that's worked out well as that was early April, but it does feel like a good amount has changed since that point in time. Is that still where you stand? We've been moving back towards a defensive posture recently, and um, we're reluctant to go fully to a defensive posture until this next stimulus bill gets negotiated and passed and starts to work its way into the economy. In the last two weeks, the rumored size of the stimulus has risen from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. Uh, that's a big delta. And we know, we know from the past that stimulus doesn't just drop into consumer pockets and drop into their spending and stimulate the economy. What it does is stimulate asset bubbles. And so to the extent that it drops into people's pockets and people aren't working so there's less goods and services to buy, then you're either going to get asset inflation or consumer price inflation or a bit of both. We didn't get the consumer price inflation after the global financial crisis because the money remains stalled on the Fed's balance sheet and in uh, rebuilding the balance sheets of banks and didn't get out into the macro economy to be uh, spent to create the demand. Now, if it gets out in the economy to create the demand and there's no supply, there's elements of truth in both Keynesianism and supply side economics. Uh, If there's no supply, you're going to create inflation. And so therein lies the challenge. Do I think some of the stimulus will make its way into the uh, capital markets? Of course, yes. 
And so does that push the market higher? Very possibly, yes. Um, or at least it props it up at levels that don't make economic sense. Um, I never thought after the tech bubble that I would ever see dispersion in valuation between growth and value stocks as wide as we saw then. It was insane. And we're there again. The spread between growth and value stocks using price to book value, which is a very flawed measure, reached a point of um, nine to one ratio, growth being nine times as expensive as value during the tech bubble. That's an astonishing ratio. Well, it's now 11 to one. 11 to 1. Using price to sales, it reached a point of 16 or 17 to 1. It's now 19 to 1 between growth and value. Some valuation metrics, you mentioned Elon Musk and uh, the negligible book value of Tesla. Some valuation metrics like price to book are actually pretty deeply flawed. We have a paper coming out shortly that demonstrates that intangibles are a huge missing component of book value. And that if you incorporate intangibles, you get a better valuation metric. And that I think is exciting work because it actually makes the Fama French price to book based value factor about 30 to 50% more powerful. That's cool. That's, that's pretty interesting. Very cool. You know, I, uh, Rob, that brings us to a, another uh, really interesting uh, report that you guys have out recently about the, sort of the notion of when that turn to value uh, might happen. Uh, and you point out that value tends to underperform in a in a downturn in a market like like we saw this year, and then outperform during the recovery. The question I always have with this is, you know, when you look at sort of what the cohort of value stocks is right now. Um, you know, a lot of banks, a lot of uh, energy companies um, that would clearly benefit from higher interest rates, higher uh, energy prices, that sort of thing. So how much of, of the phenomenon is actually the factor and how much does it depend on sort of what sectors are in that factor <clears throat> at any given time? Or does it just so happen that cyclical stocks like that tend to be in the value factor uh, a lot more often, especially at these sort of inflection points in the economy like this? That's a lot of questions rolled into one. Firstly, the notion that value loses during bear markets. Uh, actually, what our research showed is that it's a coin toss. Um, people buy value thinking it's going to help cushion the downside. Uh, it sometimes does and it sometimes doesn't. If you bifurcate bear markets into those that are driven by the bursting of a bubble, value wins big, big. The end of the tech bubble. Uh, value stocks actually were up about 20 to 30 percent in the first two years of that bear market. Up 20 percent. All right. That's interesting. When the Nifty 50 burst in 73 and 4, value outperformed handily. When you have a, a macroeconomic shock where the economy itself is getting hit hard, value tends to perform as badly as the market or worse. Global financial crisis, it performed worse, not drastically worse, but worse enough to get people's attention because they thought it was going to protect them on the downside, which it doesn't. 
Where value really shines is in the first two years after a bear market peters out, and it makes very little difference whether the bear market was fundamentals related or bubble related. Uh, <clears throat> the recovery um, of value tends to beat uh, the market as a whole by 10 to 20 percentage points uh, over the next two years. And taken together, the bear market and the recovery value on average wins by about 30%. 10% in cases where uh, it's, it's uh, economic dislocation and uh, 40 or 50% in times when it's a bursting of a bubble. What do we have now? We have- Kind of both, right? Yeah, you kind macroeconomic of both? <laughs> driven bear market and the bubble has not yet burst. <laughs> so if we have a second leg to the bear market, my prediction would be that it will be a bubble bursting portion of the bear market. I have no idea when is the right time to pivot into value. I have a very strong view that value over the next five years will beat growth handily by a wide margin. But if you want to pick the entry point, I have no clue. I would say average in over the course of the next year or two. Do not, do not cut your value exposure just because it's hurt you of late. Now, the other part of your question is, what about those sectors that comprise value? Aren't they, let, let me rephrase uh, your question and put words in your mouth, this time is different. <laughs> People say this time is different lots of times. And usually, always things are different. Things are always a little different. Rarely are they different enough to matter. This particular economic meltdown things are different enough that they do matter. And the question is by how much? There are gonna be a ton of bankruptcies. Those bankruptcies will be overwhelmingly on the value side of the spectrum. So to the extent you can invest in value and avoid value traps that are headed to zero, that is wonderful. It's a tough thing to do, but that is a, a wonderful aspirational goal. Then the question is, how much of the value segment would have to go bust to justify that current 11 to 1 spread? That spread is absolutely enormous. Um, gross stocks 11 times as expensive as value using price to book and different ratios using earnings or, or sales. 11 to 1 spread, what's the normal spread? It's about 5 to 1. So what would it take for the 11 to 1 spread to go to 5 to 1 without value doubling relative to growth? Well, the easy way to do that is for half of the value stocks to go bust. So I would say if you look at the current situation and if you come away with a view that half of the publicly traded value stocks in the market are likely to go bust in the coming year, then I would say don't pivot into value. My personal view is 10 or 20% of them are going bust. I don't know which ones, uh, although I, I, I think debt coverage ratios and things like that can help avoid some of the uh, falling knives. But uh, in any event, um, if you have the view that uh, this cycle is different, but not so radically different as to kill half of the value stocks, then it's a phenomenal time to buy value. Mm -hmm. 
collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I believe Rob gets uh, some special award for actually answering all parts to Mike's question. I, th- I think I think he got every one of them. It's like when, you know, well, you, when you watch the, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve press conference, you know, you got your one shot. So you, you throw in like five questions. I thought I've I've seen my friend Jeff Kearns ask, ask questions at those things. And I, I keep expecting like that music they play at the Oscars, you know, halfway through his questions. But never mind. Never mind. I better not comment on that one, Rob. I don't know. No emergency rate cut. Right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think that uh, leads us to uh, that time of the week, Sarah. I believe it does. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. So, Rob, this is our week, our weekly gimmick, the craziest thing we saw in markets this week. I'm going to let Sarah go first because I feel like in North Carolina, there's got to be something crazy going on uh, that we don't know about. Uh, Not too much. I I really have been confined to where I'm staying right now. I haven't been able to get out and about and explore, Um, (laughs) unfortunately, hopefully soon. Um, So I I might disappoint you. Not as crazy as it is, I think, interesting um, to the point that we are in right now. I I was able to see so far 11... S&P 500 technology companies have reported earnings, and every single one of them have beaten earnings expectations. Now, of course, there are plenty of other metrics that people are watching and and that go into this. Um, But since the earnings season began, tech is actually the worst performing sector along with communication services. So you you bring in some of the other fang names as well. And it just shows you the point that we are at right now with some of these mega cap, very popular tech names where they can beat on earnings, but it doesn't matter because they already are trading at very high valuations and expectations are them are just are just sky high. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. That's, that tells you a lot about sort of the, the climate right now. Not only do you have to beat, I guess you have to, you know, uh, cure cancer and, and land on the moon and, and, and who knows what That's else. About to, it. To... But every single one of these tech companies is going to do that, right? Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> They'll all go to the moon. Maybe Tesla. So I'm going to I'm going to break your rules a little bit. I'm going to go back a week. Um, the craziest thing I've seen uh, uh, this month was a week ago Monday when Tesla rose um, 250 points and then fell 300 points, basically a 15% up, 20% down move uh, based on precisely zero news about Tesla. Now, (laughs) you can think about that and come up with possible rationales um, uh, if they have a trailing 12-month profitability, net profitability, S&P will finally have to add them to the index. The index funds like to say, we don't move stock prices. Oh my God, is that a lie? 
uh, it doesn't move on the day they add the stocks because it moves in the weeks ahead as arbitrageurs and hedge funds load up on the company in order to fulfill the one-day immediate demand. But Tesla would come in at about a 1% weight. There's about $6 trillion index to the S&P. Uh, that means that when it's added to the S&P, there will be a $60 billion buy ticket for Tesla stock in a single day people looking ahead to that will say, okay, I want to front run that, put that on my books, and then flip it over to the index funds when it gets added. Uh, we saw it on Twitter. It went up 25% in the space of 10 days. Uh, and the index funds were able to say, we didn't move Twitter's price. It closed more or less unchanged. Same thing will happen this go around. Um, but that swing up 300, up 250 and down 300 in a single day, based on no news, was, to me, the wackiest thing I've seen this month. That was a good one, yeah. It's amazing. I think it's because they ran out of those short shorts. It is why. Everything is because they ran out of those short shorts. (laughs) The reason that they posted 12-month profitability, Mike, was because of those short shorts as well. I really don't want to see Elon Musk in short shorts. Maybe that'll be what finally brings the stock down. He'll he'll tweet <laughs> out, I, I think Tesla stock is too expensive. And then he'll also include a picture of him in Tesla short shorts. Well, it's it's interesting to think of what, you know, uh, how much is going to have to get sold of all the other stocks in the index funds to make to make some room for Tesla. I guess they I guess they buy it ahead of time and just That's a nuance that a lot of people overlook. You're going to have to see to buy 60 billion in Tesla that day, you're going to have to uh, sell about 3 billion of uh, Apple and a like amount of Microsoft that same day in order to make that trade. And people aren't paying attention to that. Right. You're not making room for a little guy. You're, make, you're making room for a very large stock. <laughs> when it gets added, it'll be the biggest addition to the S&P 500 ever. Ever, right. The, as far as the weighting, I guess, right? And of course, the share price hasn't budged in the least based on that speculation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just trading sideways lately, right? Yeah. All right, Mike, you're up. That's pretty good. Well, in the spirit of bubbles, you know, Sarah, a lot of uh, our Twitter friends complain that we don't cover Bitcoin and crypto enough. So I'm going to delve into that world a little bit uh, through the back door, so to speak, um, and talk about sort of what I think is the most important uh, real world use case for Bitcoin. And that is uh, committing crimes, you know, and and other and other shadiness, general shadiness. What else would you use Bitcoin for, right, Mike? That's at least you. I'm saying personally. I know, I know. I'm I'm bound to get some more uh, some more tweets at me about this, but <laughs> and, uh, all in good fun. I'm just joking, sort of. But anyway, there's a great story in this week's Business Week about this company, Norsk Hydro. It's a it's a big uh, aluminum manufacturer uh, based in Norway, and they got hit with one of these ransomware attacks where you know a, a hacker basically freezes up your computer systems and demands Bitcoin in payment, and then they send you the the code to unlock your computers again. And, you know, companies have a variety of strategies for dealing with this. Norsk Hydro's was was really interesting. They're like, no way. We're unplugging all of our computers. They took the entire company offline. And then the story's all about how they tried to operate in sort of an analog world without being connected to the Internet. And they had to do all sorts of things, uh, including um, they went to Staples and bought a bunch of printers and paper and ink cart 
cartridges. They said they cleaned out the local staples, basically. And they had these old PCs somewhere in storage that don't connect to the internet. So they broke them out and they started printing out orders. Now, the salesmen, uh, you know, because they couldn't communicate on the, the internet, had not much to do. So they they made the salesman go to the factory floor and start running these instructions on paper back and forth between the guys on the floor, uh, the workers on the floor. But my favorite part, Sarah, is, well, one other thing. they In order to meet payroll, they basically just copied all of the previous week's paychecks from their third-party supplier and sent them all out again. And they tried to weed out the people who had retired and gotten fired and that sort of thing. But to communicate with suppliers, they broke out the old fax machine, which I think is amazing. Because, Sarah, if this happened to Bloomberg, I think I might be running the show. I might be one of the only guys old enough who still knew how to work a fax machine. I would be. I'd be like, (laughs) I'd be faxing your stories. This is your time to shine. That is. But my when I started in the my newspaper career in the early '90s. I used to go to the fax machine every day and I'd have to check for obits, you know, obituaries and police reports. And tucked in among all of that would be news from from this new young upstart news company called Bloomberg News. And I and they would just fax it to, to newspapers. Uh, that's how we started was was faxing out the stories and hoping that newspapers would say, hey, this is pretty good. We're going to we're going to take this service. You know, we're going to start running this stuff. Um so I'm, a, I'm an old hand with a fax machine. Rob, I imagine you worked a fax machine or two in your day. Oh, I have. I have. Uh. <laughs> I still get some every now and then. If you fax to us, there's some fax number we're all associated with, and it'll show up in my email, uh, uh, sort of a scan of the fax. And it's always like, you know, uh, some sort of Caribbean vacation or I don't know. You get You get the weirdest stuff. Fascinating story, but I still think Rob gets the win with Tesla. You you almost can't lose with Tesla these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially the short shorts. <laughs> Pat on the back. <laughs> but we are going to have to leave it there. Rob Arnott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. This was great fun. Thank you so much. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and read the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous, and you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And a very special thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.